So Robin is going to do the devotional, and then after that, um, we're going to mute everybody, and I'll go through a presentation, and, and then we'll unmute you for questions. But that way you can't hear any background noise, and it, and it kind of moves faster. There you go. Okay, I think y'all can hear me now. Um, so I wanted to just do a quick reflection on kind of where we find ourselves right now, um, which for me is day 15 of self-isolation. Um, I think that is a place that a lot of us never expected to find ourselves. Um, what that has meant for me has been uh, bringing work home and in a little one-bedroom apartment, that means uh, work is hard to get away from, especially when work is very, very busy right now. Um, so that has, that has been a big change for me. Um, I think like, people are experiencing it different ways. I look at my brother and his wife. He's a financial planner. She's an attorney. They never thought they were going to have to deal with financial issues. And now there's a concern about income. And they have two young children. So I think that that everybody's going through a period of change and a period that's um, uncertain and scary. Um, and as we go through this, I keep finding myself coming back to a book I read a couple years ago by um, Barbara Brown Taylor called Leaving Church. Um, she is a uh, an Episcopalian pastor who um, ran or started a small church, grew it, spent lots of time doing this and completely burned out. And um, decided not to leave ministry, but to leave being a pastor in a church. She's now a, um, a, a professor at seminary and, a, and an author. Um, and she wrote this book that is her um, memoir of that experience of burning out and figuring out that she had to change. And it's interesting. Um, the book kind of opens with her quoting Walter Brueggemann, who is a, a scholar um, saying the world for which you have been so carefully prepared is being taken away from you by the grace of God. Um, and I think that, that that sticks with me a little bit in how we are all finding ourselves not where we thought we would be and, um, and in this strange place. And she starts this book talking about all of the things that were killing her. And she finishes the book talking about all of the things that are saving her. Um, and one of those things, she says, is the Sabbath. And I want to read um, this paragraph um, from her because she states this more eloquently than I would. But she says, um, observing the Sabbath is saving my life now. For the first time in my life, I can rest without leaving home. With sundown on the Sabbath, I stop seeing the dust balls, the bills, the laundry. They are still here, but they lose their power over me. Each day, one day each week, I live as if all my work were done. I live as if the kingdom has come, and when I do, the kingdom comes for at least one day. Now, when I know the Sabbath is near, I can feel the anticipation bubbling up inside of me. Sabbath is no longer a good idea or even a spiritual discipline for me. It is a regular date with the divine presence that enlivens both body and soul. Um, I found that coming to me last week, and I shared this with Larry last week after class, but um, as I was getting ready to, to tune into worship last Sunday morning, 
where I had spent pretty much the entire week in front of my computer. And I thought, I do not want to spend another day in front of my computer. But I had worship that day and I teach confirmation class. And then we had this class and I found myself um, spending my whole day in my computer, but for worship and for um, study and reflection and finding community there. Um, so in the midst of this time where we're all confused and where things are weird and where things are uncertain and scary, I've managed to find some peace in sitting into the Sabbath and to what that can mean. Um, and so I, I hope to that share that with you all and that you all can start finding that as well. And that would be my hope for us during this um, confusing time that we can find some of that grace that, um, that Patrick talked about in his sermon this morning. And that's all I've got. All right. Uh, thank you. Yes, sir. Now, can you all hear me? No, you can. Okay. <laughs> I need definitive yeses. <laughs> I need cheers, something. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Robin. So, well, let me start with a prayer So, or follow that devotional with a prayer. So, dear God, as we are uh, more than a week into this new way of being, we ask that we will uh, experience some Sabbaths today, even as we deal with texts that don't always provide us with Sabbath, but may we see through them um, the broad spectrum, the broad spectrum of your movement into history and into our lives. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So um, we're going to do. I'm, I know that you've got a handout, and for the most part, I won't be able to cover all of it, but there'll be parts of it that I cover. And I've really uh, thought I'm going to add a section here at the beginning to try to really frame this historically and in the broad sweep of of the gospel from the Old Testament to New Testament. But um, the, we're in first, second, first and second Timothy and Titus are, are called the pastoral epistles. And they were given that name by, by uh, scholars uh, in the 1800s. So that's not a biblical name, but they're called pastoral because really they, they deal with even in a further and more institutional way, the development of the early church. And, and part of what you see in these, in this material is the development of the church as an organization. And, and it has offices, it has bishops, it has, uh, and, and then it has ways to be and ways to act. So I sometimes say that in many ways, this material is like an officer training manual. And it, it was considered, it's, it's considered to be literature that was written around 125 AD, which really puts it likely after Paul's death is one of the arguments for it not being directly from his hand. Um, but it, there are other materials that we have that are not in the Bible, namely the letter of Polycarp and the Didache, uh, which I remember reading in seminary that are similar in that they really a lot of them talk about qualifications of church leaders and how to organize uh, the church. Along with this, and, and what becomes most troublesome about this material for us generally, is some of the pretty pres prescriptive ways in terms of the roles of women. And that's we're going to spend a fair amount of time on that, and, and that's part of why I want to lead into this with history. I just want to also repeat that... Um, on the assumption that this material was not written by Paul directly, 
it, it is something that comes out of his school. And we're going to end the class on, on really one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, which is, is second Timothy uh, four, I believe. Um, and if, if it's not from Paul, then somebody wrote a brilliant, um, speculation of what Paul was going through at the end of his life. So, and that I want to end on that warm note because it's just, it's just a great chapter. So, but again, what's important in terms of, of the way I view scripture and try to teach it is uh, just like Shakespeare or anything else, it's dealing with the literature in the shape that it's in, in the way we have it uh, and our interaction with it as a text and its influence on the church and on history. So with that, um, what I would like to do, and none of this is in your, uh, none of this is in your handout, but I kind of want to give you, I do want to give you my best overall theory for how to approach particularly first and second Timothy, um, and, and Titus as well, but Titus is not as well known, um, what I think we have in these books is um, is a way of seeing the historical development uh, of Christianity, first of all, from a reform movement in Judaism into not only an organization, but an institution with all of the blessings and bane, the joys and sorrows that institutions bring, all the baggage they bring. Um, and if we, if we think about, especially, uh, those many of you all who have had Old Testament, as we go back to Genesis, we, we have dealt now with 2000 years of the, of the history of God and God's people. Um, all the way back to the call of Abraham and Sarah through God's promise of land descendants and blessing through the people of Israel being liberated from slavery and receiving the law as their identity, the Ten Commandments, their experience in the wilderness, and then their experience of of taking, receiving the land. As we watch them in the land, we watch them move from tribal leadership in the book of Judges, where a tribe would win a battle, a chieftain would win a battle and would be elevated to the national leader for a while, uh, to the development of the monarchial leadership of the kings. And we saw Saul, David, and Solomon. And then uh, with with not good succession after Solomon, uh, we saw the kingdom divide into two uh, periods, experience some, some civil war, and ultimately, both the northern and the southern kingdom were led off into exile. Um, in at, at, in 587 was the last last manifestation of that. Um, it was during that period that we saw another type of leadership emerge, and that was the prophets calling the people of Israel back to faithfulness. And even later in that period we saw develop what we call the writings, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, sort of the literature of Israel. Um, we also saw during that late Old Testament period, the beginnings and the expression of the hope for a Messiah, 
uh, particularly in Isaiah and, and other Old Testament texts, Micah, Zephaniah. Uh, and that led us to the beginning of this course, where you all come in, and we were all together in September, um, looking at the birth stories of Christ. And obviously, one of the themes that we realized is that a major reason that Christ was not accepted by by the Jews as the Messiah is that he didn't fit, especially the political and messianic hopes that the Messiah was going to undo all the bad history and bring in the kingdom of God here and now and throw the Romans off off their backs. Um, but one of the ways that I have, have tried to teach Christ and teach the New Testament is for us to think of Jesus as um, it's not only the reformer of Judaism, but but really the radicalizer of Judaism, the idealist, uh, almost the mystic, um, the person who was very elusive and hard to understand. He spoke in parables uh, and didn't have a lot to say about uh, the institutional life. He didn't necessarily see himself as overturning Judaism. He didn't, he never used the word church. Um, he didn't talk about Christianity being a movement. He was truly a savior and, and, um, and idealist. Uh, and did, did not fit, was too elusive to fit the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. But, Upon his death and, and the death and resurrection, certainly the death would be a reason he would not have been accepted as the Messiah. But after his death and resurrection, we then in the book of Acts saw the idealism and the fire, literally, that came out of Pentecost, out of the early church movement. When they were given the gift of the Spirit in Acts 2, and they held everything in common and the, and the gospel was spreading very quickly and people were converting and were selling all their goods and pooling them as a church and living in this idealistic community and world, um, which didn't last terribly long, like Ananias and Sapphira proved. But we also then saw in Acts the, the movement to take this thing called Christianity that Jesus had unleashed into an entirely different culture away from the Semitic Jewish Hebraic world into the Greco-Roman world. And and that's why for many weeks now, we have been following the apostle Paul on these journeys throughout the non-Jewish world to the Gentile world where he would found a church, move to another city, um, and then answer letters back from that church. Um, one of the issues that we saw last week as the church gets older and grayer as the years pass is that Christ does not return. And so they are dealing with what's called the delay of the parousia or the delay in the expectations they had that Christ was going to return in their lifetime. And with that comes a certain need to begin to adjust and say, okay, well, maybe he is not coming or we don't know when he's coming. How do we live here and now? Particularly, how do we live here and now when 
the Romans are in charge. And some of us, if not all of us, live under a threat of persecution. Um, part of the, the inevitable thing that happens as time passes is that this Christian movement kind of settles in under the Roman Empire and begins to take the shape of an organization with house churches and with ministers and elders and officers. And that organization in, you know, the next three to 400 years will grow into the huge institution um, under the Holy Roman Empire of, of, of Roman Catholicism. But it's almost becoming an institution now. And, it, and as you know, uh, organizations and institutions tend to develop traditions and norms and sort of rules for who's in and who's out and who's going to be accepted and who's not, who's going to be a leader and who's not. That's part of the the pros and cons, the blessing and bane of institutions. They have baggage with them. Some of the great traditions start off with a good reason, but then they hang on and nobody can really remember the reason, but people are clutching to the practice because we've always done it that way. Um, in these letters, Paul is depicted as being at the end of his life and in prison. He's writing the letters to Timothy from prison and makes reference to that at several times. Um, and, and in the last chapter that we're going to get with, get, spend some time on, uh, he really becomes reflective and it's some very beautiful writing. Um, but in the meantime, Wayne Meeks, who's a Presbyterian scholar, says that if Paul wrote these letters, it is an aging Paul with the fire gone out. Um, I don't think that's entirely fair, but I can understand that. I mean, this is Paul at the end of his life. And what we see in in the parts of, of these letters that are difficult for us, particularly dealing with women and slaves and, and widows and, and orphans and, and the role of, of some of the most famous passages about the role of women in the church are, uh, are ways that the church developed as an organization or an institution. And the questions, it, I mean, if you, if you take this material as being prescriptive, as being because that's the way it was, this is the way we have to be today, you are in, uh, in sync with a huge portion of the Christian world. Um, certainly much of Roman Catholicism, much of evangelical Protestantism, it, you know, and part of that comes from what I call a flat reading of the Bible where you basically say, because that's the way it was and that's what it says, that's the way we have to do it today. What, what I prefer to, to read this as in this long historical suite going all the way back to, to Abraham and Sarah is, is to ask ourselves as we read this material and as we read, as we see things in it, and as we read where it comes from, what can we learn? What, it, 
what does it reveal about the impact of history on a religion or on our faith and the impact of our faith on a religion and on history? Um, and, and can what we learn move us away from having to see these texts as being prescriptive, as it has to be this way? Can we rather see them primarily as descriptive, as teaching us something about history from which we learn um, as we seek to be faithful today versus, uh, versus, thank you, now I'm big on the screen, <laughs> at least to me, so um, versus as, as having to imitate and, and shape the church today. Um, with, so I want to, I mean, that's one thing that I want to say, and then I want to point you to uh, I want to point you to a part of the handout, but I, but I think I don't I'm just going to mention these. The, these letters also show some differences or some development in theology that are different emphases than what you find in Paul's letters, like Romans and Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. Um, and, and this also shows something of a development. So if, if you look at your handout, um, just some of the slight differences. Um, in There are in in these parts, in the pastoral letters, places where the statements of salvation as a gift of God do sound very genuine to the Paul of, of, of his undisputed letters. But there are also places in these letters where, where it sounds like the theology has become a little more legalistic or a little more rigorous and practiced. Like in 1 Timothy 1.9, the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient. And in Titus 2, 11 to 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, but training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, that, that whole passage there. What, what this shows is um there is grace in Paul's letters, undisputed letters, and there's grace here. A little bit more emphasis in in his earlier letters on the gift of grace and how this is a bursting in on history and a bursting in on human life, sort of like Patrick's sermon, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, and that was blind, but now I'm see. Versus grace here that becomes a little bit more worked out in behavior and law and tradition. So it means renouncing impiety and world, worldly passions, being self-controlled, upright, godly. Um, a little bit more of an emphasis that direction. There is also in the pastoral epistles a stronger emphasis on tradition, on teaching. In one place he talks about sound doctrine that is supposed to be held to and learned that is a little bit less dynamic than the, than the infusion of the spirit that comes at Pentecost and comes in the earlier letters. 
So like at first Timothy three to seven, and this, this may be on your handout. Uh, but I'll, but I'll read this, uh, just to give a, a flavor of it. Uh, first Timothy one, first Timothy one, three to seven. I urge you as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Not to occupy themselves with myths, myths and endless genealogies that promote speculation rather than the divine teaching that's known by faith. Um, I remember growing up in the church, we had a, a wonderful man and elder who, who taught youth and Sunday school and was always on the session and was a little bit of a bane to everybody's existence. Because he was constantly quoting Calvin and the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechism. And it's not that people didn't believe that, but it's, but it's like, you know, you had to, you had to have it memorized and be able to quote it to converse with him or, or to be on the same page as him. And that's a little bit of what you get in, in, in these epistles or people that are really wanting to hold the line on teaching. And, and there's, in a sense, nothing wrong with that, but it's not as dynamic at, as an earlier Paul. Paul, um, There is also in here uh, a lack of, of eschatological tension. There's not as much a sense, because they've accepted, more or less accepted, that Christ isn't going to return in their last time. They are not poised, ready like in some of the parables of Jesus. They're not expecting everything to come to to be fully redeemed and brought together, as we even saw last week when we were talking about, you know, 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, what they have now is a Christianity that is kind of settling in and making itself at home in the world and focusing on worship and teaching and sort of being together under Roman domination, but in a way that will allow continuation in the future and not make a lot of waves. So there's a little more focus on, um, on, on Paul, on living in the world now, um, rather than expecting the return to Christ. Now the, now the, the good thing about this, and then I, then I want to unmute you all and, and have a little bit of discussion. Um, one of the positive aspects of, of the past, of these letters is that they value and bless the religious authenticity of tradition and experience. And, and what, it's Lou Timothy Johnson who says that, and, and I, I knew him, he's, he's no longer living, but what, what Johnson, who was raised Catholic, was, was onto with that is, that for those of us who don't live on the edge of our seats expecting Christ to return or expecting the world to be redeemed and remade any day, um, what we have to fall back on and nourish ourselves are the traditions we've inherited, is the teaching. It's not so much um, the experience of Christ that that may or may not be duplicated, but it's the acquiring of wisdom and, and actually of 
the common sense of making decisions on the ground, much like wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And so in, in some of what I'm going to show you, it it appears to be that, that this is Paul and the early church trying to figure out what to do in a particular situation, you know, to the best of their faith, but knowing that they probably don't have it right or that what they're doing would not necessarily be universal and absolute for all situations. And, and that's one way in which this material is valuable, even as some of the decisions and prescriptions that they made have, have really done damage to the role of women in the church, if not women in general, and, and have held back what could be a more uh, egalitarian church and egalitarian society. This is not the Paul of in Christ. There's neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. This is a, a more settled and less idealistic and less less fiery Paul. So with that, uh, I'm happy to unmute you. Do you know how I do that, Catherine, or do you want to do it for me, or Vince? We're unmuted, Larry. Yep. Everybody's, everybody's out there. On what? Everybody can speak. Everybody can speak. So I need to get on the screen that sees everybody. So go to your upper right and click on gallery view. Yes. Okay. This is great. So, so what worked yesterday for me is if you would literally raise your hand, just, well, I can't see everybody, or you can do the, the, uh, the thing at the bottom. I don't know. Just start talking. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you if I can recognize you. You want to say something? And I, and I was told last week I need to give eight seconds when I add a, ask a question because people are shy. And I did that on Wednesday, and it worked. So who would like to – who has something to say? <laughs> Eight. Come on, somebody say something. Well, you, may have already, you may have already mentioned this, but where does Timothy – was Timothy Paul's favorite? Okay, that's – no, I didn't mention that, and that's that's important. Um in Paul's lifetime, especially in Acts, as we saw him, he seemed to always have one or two people uh, who were sort who he was sort of mentoring. Right. And and Timothy was much younger than him, but Timothy was sort of the last, you know, the latest in that because again we're at the end of Paul's life. But uh, but earlier there were others that were Paul and Silas, you know, was one of them. So he was just a young man who whom Paul was mentoring and happened to be that person as Paul faced the end of his life. Thanks. Yeah. Other questions or comments? So I don't necessarily have a question. I have a comment on the, the Luke Timothy Johnson. Yeah. Um, so his, or at least my understanding of what you said about his quote kind of, goes along uh, or falls along with uh, Peter Eames, how the Bible actually works. Um, the concept of what we have here are primary documents. Um, well, I guess not primary documents, they've been retranslated, but best attempt at a primary document of people communicating at the time, trying to use wisdom to create a church. So imagine and it's our sacred responsibility to reimagine or to use this wisdom to reimagine the church that we want today. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I, I'm always a little reluctant to use the word want just because that's such a consumer word. Need? Uh, that we would feel would be most faithful to God. How's that, Nate? I'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, and, and I do think it's extinction. The thing about Lou, Timothy Johnson that, that's important, too, is that, uh, again, this, this is a man who was raised a blue-collar uh, Catholic. He was a Jesuit priest. Um, studied and taught as a Catholic until his 40s and then left and, and married a woman that he had been taking care of. So spent the next 30 years as a New Testament professor as a Protestant. Uh, but he loved, he really had a deep appreciation for Catholicism. And, and part of what he's saying is that, you know, in so much of Protestantism, especially in a revivalistic mode, is dependent upon revelation. You know, Jesus told me to do this. Jesus spoke to me to do this. The Spirit spoke to me to do this. And what Timothy, Luke Timothy Johnson says is you should always respect tradition that's come down because, uh, like Renita Weems says, there's a lot of time in between the last time God spoke to us and the next time God's going to speak to us. You know, so you've got this structure of belief that that is not just what the Bible says. So that, that's another aspect of Johnson. So other comments. Um, Larry, I have a comment. Um, it's Roger. Yes, Roger. I guess, um, you know, in being confronted or, or actually uh, in discussion with the alternative kind of interpretation of how we should be looking at this, how do you address that with um, individuals or people who are <coughs> this in a very different kind of way? Um, I, I don't, yeah, I, it's, I've not really had a conversation with somebody about this particular material since, since I've been doing this kind of study, but, because I don't, I don't get a lot of that at, at Westminster and the, and the circles I run in. In, you know, one very big way of saying it is to say that you always have to, to read a book of the Bible like Timothy in the culture of its day. And, and how much was Paul in this instance breaking from that culture or how much of it was he just reflecting the culture? kind of unselfconsciously. And, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But but I think a deeper way, I mean, I mean the best distinction that, that I've had that I came across about 15 or so years ago is, is this distinction that Phyllis Tribble draws between, and she basically says it's our moral responsibility, our responsibility as a faithful Christian to look at a text and say, is this text describing the way human nature is or way the church is? Or is it prescribing like medicine that we are supposed to be taking and imitating? And, and she basically says, you have to do that by being aware of as much of the Bible as you can and being aware of just sort of a basic question of, of you know, if I take this prescriptively, if I really believe 
that women are to be silent in church, which is what we'll look at in a minute. Does that really fit my deepest and broadest understanding of God? And and if the answer to that is no, what, what I've really been giving you is to say, you know, in, in this instance, one way of looking at this material is to see it as an example of a long historical development. And frankly, to see it as an example of how the idealism of Jesus can sort of level out into some pretty, you know, conventional things, some of which are, are not very equal, or even the, the initial p- fire of Paul in Galatians. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. I mean, he's on fire there. And now he's saying, oh, you know, I just don't know if the women should be speaking in church. I mean, it's sort of an older middle-aged Paul that many of us my age get tempted into, you know, I just don't want to deal with it, you know, and, and even that can be scripture because it teaches us something. So Roger, that's, that's what I would say to somebody about this specific passage. And halfway through, they would have walked off shaking their head. So I don't really, I don't say that negatively, but you know, it's, it, it's not, it's not an argument that carries a lot of weight if you are truly a literalist and believe that, that everything you read should be translated directly into the way we do things today. That's sort of a divide that's hard to cross for either side. Larry, question. Yes, Ted. Uh, you've often described the, the Bible as a historical document, which it is, right? So in the context of, if you will, Christianity, at what point did we transition from it being a prescriptive document to a descriptive document? Because it seems to me that for, for almost, for the larger portion of the 2000 years since this thing was written, right? It was a prescriptive document. And what caused the change? Um, I, I would quibble a little bit with, with what you're saying and on two levels, Ted. One is, I always want us to think of the Bible as a library. It is not, you know, one document or one book cover to cover that is even, you know, just like if, I mean, if we read, you know, a history book, it's got one author and it's all the way through and sort of one subject. Right, right. And, and I, and I know that what I've been trying to do the last, last decade or so, is to say that within the Bible itself, often through its contradictions, are are ways that we are invited into the conversation. Okay. Okay. And and an example was those those two texts from Proverbs, which ends talks about of you know answer a fool, don't answer a fool that are right. back to back, or even with Paul. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. Women should be quiet in church. I mean, both of those are attributed to Paul. And so we don't really have the luxury of saying, well, I'm going to follow this one as prescriptive and this one as descriptive. Maybe it's the tension between the two. And and that that occurs within the text rather than we have changed from the outside looking at it. And if you respect the form of literature, again, um, 
you know, I think it's Psalm 137 where it talks about, you know, I'm going to take their children and bash them against the rocks. That's <laughs> right. an expression of anger that we need to accept as an expression of anger and not as, oh, you better go hunt for the, you know, next baby you can find. You see what I mean? That's within Oh, absolutely. Those are the egregious examples. So any other other comments on this, sir? Larry, this is Terry. I got a question. Yeah. One yeah. of the aspects that I was kind of intrigued on is the whole idea is he's writing these letters to basically say, you know, be true and uh, try to address all the people who are claiming to be leaders and all their yeah. sort of teachings and uh, pronouncements. What was the alternative uh, groups that he was saying Timothy should basically try to correct? To avoid, okay. As, that's a good question, Terry. And we're always left, this is the, the jeopardy where we've got an answer, but, but we have to figure out what the question is, <clears throat> jeopardy that did that. But um, because what what I would say is, unlike our, I mean, our common assumption, because, you know, we are Christians and most of us have been nurtured in pretty much a Christian culture. Granted, it's, you know, there are a lot of exceptions to it, but sort of the overall umbrella of our of our American and Western culture has has been more or less Christian um, in in the Greco-Roman world, Christianity was a new religion that was inserted into a world in which there were a lot of religions, many of which worshipped the emperor, worshipped the, the, the Roman emperor. There was a lot of astrology. There was a lot of, you know, different gods. And so, and, and almost everybody that converted to Christianity under Paul came from one of those other religions. And, and so part of what he's, what part of what he is battling, particularly as, as the fire goes out is, is, you know, you, you, you left that Methodist church and you became Presbyterian and it gets kind of boring and you want to go back to that Methodist church every once in a while. I mean, he's, he's trying to keep people to, to, to get them to remember why they joined in the first place. Yeah. Okay. But, but it's a much more eclectic, multicultural. It's actually, it's actually much more like the world, you know, people Nate's age are growing up in than the world you and I grew up in. Because what's out there now, you know, for young people and people in their twenties and thirties and younger is a world of different expressions that sort of generally go under the title of religious or spiritual. And we're sitting over here in a colonial Presbyterian church, you know, all straight laced and wondering why people aren't coming. You know, it's, it's just a lot out there. So Paul's trying to interpret this tradition to that world. And, and again, they face persecution. They can only do so much without having their wrists slapped literally. Okay. Which is not really something we face. And in, in our world, tradition is very important. Yes. Probably in, in some of the others, it, they're not necessarily as held as a, a way to basically practice their religion. They're kind of more free, free form. Yeah. I mean, I realize 
you know, I realized the world were, was changing when even as a freshman at the University of Arkansas in 1973, you know, I, I was hanging around these kids that were very religious and very Southern Baptist and very pious, but we're not necessarily practicing that kind of piety and religion on Friday and Saturday night. And I'm not just talking about drinking, you know, I mean, I, it's sort of like there was this gap and, and I sort of realized that even then the, the Christian ethic was crumbling a little bit, you know, especially in, in the sexual area. And I remember in Iowa about 20 years ago, I, I did a wedding of a couple that, that really didn't have any church background at all in the, in the, uh, the guests were that way. I mean, the guests were either. And I remember at some point it was, yeah, I think it was a wedding. You know, I, I included a prayer and had the Lord's prayer. And, and I said, as I do at the rehearsal, so when we get to the Lord's prayer, I'd like everybody to join in on it. And there was not one person at the rehearsal that knew what I was talking about. Wow. And these were not sophisticated new age intellectuals. I mean, a lot of these were, I mean, you know, the type just sort of regular off the farm, blue collar labor union, Iowa kids. They didn't usually, sometimes they'll even say, Oh, that's the, our father. And so you get something there, but they didn't even know that it was just like I was from Mars, which I sort of am anyway. But I mean, that's, that's the world into which Paul was, was writing and leading. And so he's trying to keep people from, in your old Southern Baptist word, backsliding. You know, that's right. Stick around. Okay. <laughs> well, any other question before we move on? By the way, I wasn't part of that crowd that was corralling it Saturday night. <laughs> I know you weren't. That's why you're still <laughs> Presbyterian elder, you know, and all that. Okay. I wasn't either. So, uh, anyway, okay. So let's, uh, do you all want a break now or do you want to break in about 10 or 15 minutes? How are you doing? So Catherine, am I on? Okay. I think I'll go ahead and, and start then. Um, uh, this next section. Um, I'm going to be starting on your, what I think on your handout is, is Tom Long's lecture on the pastoral epistles. And I'm hopeful of, uh, I want us to finish this part by about 5.30 for, for discussion. And this continues what we're doing, but we're really talking about, we're going to be talking about two texts, both of which are, uh, are problematic to us or challenging to us dealing with the role of widows, and the second is is the role of, of women in church. Um, Tom Long, I'm, I'm sure you all have heard me say before, is one of the people, is actually the person that we've had uh, lead the Moveable Feast preaching group more than anybody else over the last uh, really 30-something years. He recently retired as professor of New Testament and of preaching at Emory, uh, and actually lives on the eastern shore of Maryland now, but Eight or ten years ago, he gave this lecture about the pastoral epistles, and it was it was helpful to me, um, and and I want to share it with you. So most of this is not original with me, but it it comes from him. Um, as I've said earlier, what what Tom presents as 
the way to read the pastoral epistles is that they are attempts by a pastor in this in this instance Paul to deal with the multi-faith multicultural world or setting in which he lives it's not the typical question that we protestants have of works versus grace but it's the question of how again patrick sermo is really good on this today but how how do you let grace permeate the ordinary experiences and challenges of your day-to-day life and tom at the time lived in atlanta but he raised the question of it's basically how do you drive in atlanta like a baptized christian how do you drive in washington dc like a baptized christian uh it's on the ground decisions about how the gospel manifests itself in the world and in our lives um Tom pointed out that these texts do not ask us to change the game. They ask us to make decisions within the game, within the possibilities on the chessboard. And he said that sometimes the game is simply not up to being changed. And sometimes we are not up to trying to change the game. We're just trying to live within it. Um, in our culture, we, you know, in our post-enlightenment culture, we are really products of revolution. We're products of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, Tiananmen Square, the Arab Spring, the 1960s Revolution. Uh, we now tweet a revolution. We've been through a presidential campaign in which a person was elected on the theme of disruption, among other things. And, and in the in the current campaign, we've you know probably have a candidate whose theme is revolution come as close to getting the nomination of a major party as has happened in our history. We live expecting change, expecting the ability to make major changes and overturn um, the way things are in society. But in the ancient world, Tom says, things were thought to be fixed. There would always be an emperor. There would always be slavery. Like in India, there will always be a caste system. That's a way in which the game is not considered to be up for being changed. This is, was his point. And, and what Tom asks us to do, and granted, he's, he's a male, uh, uh, not a conservative male, but he's a male. If, if we, if we understand that about the text that we're reading, it might allow us to go back to Ted's question to read them a little more historically and, and possibly a little more generously or not have them just knock us out of the saddle, uh, which is, is kind of a normal way of reacting, if, of reacting to them. Um, so on the, so the first text that I want us to look at is, is about widows. And, uh, in First Timothy, we're, we're gonna look at, um, First Timothy 5, 8 to 16, but just give a little bit of background. Um, in First Timothy, the Christian community and the family 
was really responsible for widows. And in that culture, if a woman became a widow at any age, at age 15 or 19 or 59, there was literally no economic support, no way that she could make a living other than uh, life on the streets. I mean, there just was not anything there. So it became the church's responsibility to care for widows. And a lot of these churches were no more than about 40 people in a, in a house church. And if, if a family couldn't care for a widow, it would often, it would often lead to, you know, how do we divide the resources enough to care for the widows? And what if the widow is somebody without a family? Cause that's who we're going to be caring for. And what if the widow is, is a recent convert or, or a, a Gentile? So in the book of Acts, you have this controversy in Acts 6 where the Gentile Christians say to, to the leaders of the church, you welcomed us as Gentiles into the church, but you don't care for our widows and orphans as much as you care for your own, like you're making a distinction, almost like we do with immigrants today. You know, we'll give you this as an immigrant, but we're not going to give you this. Um, and 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 what Paul what Paul is is seeing in the church or what we're seeing in this literature is that uh, widowhood in in the later church moved from becoming a condition to becoming an office, and by that uh, they they were looking for ways for widows to mentor younger women or for widows to have a role in the church. And so um, Tertullian, who's a, who was one of the early church leader leaders, uh, raged against a bishop who put a teenage girl who had never been married, was not a widow, on the widow's role uh, because she wasn't a widow. But, but Tom was saying this may have been a decision on the part of that bishop as to how to care for this young girl who had no other means of support and, and in a pragmatic way just saying, well, let's classify her as a widow so she can get benefits. It may have been breaking the rules, but it also may have been a pragmatic way of keeping somebody alive. Um, so with, with that, let's just read first Timothy five, eight to 16 and and again, with the idea that widows were, are in office, um, I'm, I'm going to read this and then, then walk you through kind of what Tom said about it. So First Timothy 5, 8, whoever does not provide for relatives, especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Very, very hard on children's or siblings that wouldn't care for a widow. Let a widow be put on the list or on the roll if she's less than 60 years old and has been married only once. She must be well attested for her good works as one who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, devoted herself to doing every good in every way. But don't put younger widows on the list. For when their sensual desires alienate them from Christ, they want to marry so that they incur a condemnation for having violated their first pledge. And this gets really bad. 
Besides that, they learn to be idle, gadding about from house to house. I don't even have the courage to look at the women on the screen. For they are not merely idle, but they're gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, so as to give the adversary no occasion to revile us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are really widows, let her assist them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can assist those who are real widows. What you see here is a distinction of trying to figure out, you know, who has the greatest need and who doesn't. Now, Tom's comments on these, this passage, which I think are good, are, uh, this is something that has, that has been taken as Christianity being against sexuality and against women's, women's sexuality in general. Um, his alternative possible read is be pragmatic. Don't take those who might want to marry and make them take vows of chastity in order to take care of their economic needs which happens if you're a widow. And Tom then said, and I remember him saying, I wish that Paul hadn't said this. I wish it weren't in the text. He's trying to be realistic about what younger women want, trying to come up with some alternative means of support. But even as shocking as it is what he said, it's not presented as an eternal truth. He's making a strategic decision about what the gospel calls for in this situation. And it's not, you know, taken to be universal and absolute. Um, it raises for us the questions of what is the social safety net? Whose responsibility is it to meet that? Religion or society? And do these teachings about religion extend to society which may or may not be Christian. So, so keep that in mind and let me go on to another passage that, that's similar with sort of a similar response and let's, then we'll have some discussion. And this, this is in, uh, first Tim, I think it's first Timothy. I've marked through my book. It's chapter two. No, second Timothy two, I believe. No, first Timothy two. Yes, turn back to 1 Timothy 2, and I'll read um, 2, 1 through 15, which I think is pretty much the whole chapter. Again, we have the same issue of dealing with texts that are that, that are very, very difficult to hear. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings should be made for everyone for kings and for all in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. 
For this, I, Paul, was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Then, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing not with hair braided with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess, who profess reverence for God. Then let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's not the best exegesis of Genesis 2 uh, or Genesis 3. Yet she will be saved through child rearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, I don't have to tell you that this passage uh has many stones in it which are very difficult, if not damaging, to women and girls, depending on on how they're used. And Tom started this part of his lecture by saying, I don't blame you, even if you choose not to go into this gothic horror chamber to try to recover the family jewels. I did a summer sermon series several years ago called Jewels in the Attic, and it was taken from this statement of trying to to resurrect or find in difficult texts like this things that, that maybe are more valuable than we first see. What Tom said is that that in the world in which Paul was writing, there was what he called an essentialist view of gender. There was a belief, and he traces this back to to Plato and beyond, that women by nature were pure, devoted, yet flighty, like birds, gossips, silly, which we see in this text. That men were strong, wise, which I would call into question, bombastic, bellicose, anxious about masculinity and prone to solve matters with their fists. And, and Tom quoted in Plato that in the Timaeus, there was actually a view expressed that women were cowardly men reincarnated. Now, Judith, you've done pl- work in the classics. I couldn't find that in Timaeus. I tried to, but I'm just going to accept that he knows what he's talking about. That, that there was this reflection, you know, in the this belief in the ancient world. The question in First Timothy is, what are we going to do about worship and in worship? With that background, if you read this this text, what what Timothy is urging people to do is make prayers and thanksgivings for everyone not just for people that are enlightened or powerful. For kings, 
so that we can live in a quiet place. Now, a, a critical view, I wouldn't even say cynical, is that this is throwing in the towel against the empire, basically saying, let's go along so that we get along. And that very well may be what's going on here. But what Tom points out is that that in this passage, Paul is instructing Christians to pray for the emperor, but not to the emperor. That a peaceful culture allows some measure of justice to occur. That he's praying for everyone to be saved, including the emperor, even if the emperor had been the one who would kill Paul. And that there is one God, one mediator, Christ himself, not just the emperor or not just a spirit. He also said that this passage is asking that men should pray with holy hands, not with anger and resentment, which would be the typical male way in that world, to not use this lowest common denominator base of masculinity, but to pray with hands that are open without anger and resentment. And that women should dress decently, unlike the women who make their living as prostitutes, which is the only choice some of them had. Learn in silent submission. And again, Tom said, I wish he hadn't said that. Luke Timothy Johnson says, translates this as, he says that keep silence is a bad translation that they should listen in silence, listen in quiet, which may or may not be better. But what Tom said is that this passage is genderized to be sure it reflects the views of the gender roles of this day, but it is asking each gender to become more like the other. It is asking men to become more gentle and reflective and women to become to become wiser and listening. Uh, now, how does this passage impact us today and what, what's, what's it been taken for? A feminist reaction can, can and is legitimately, this is the empire strikes back. This is patriarchy on the loose. Uh, we've stopped learning the gospel here. Let's take a time out from this type of passage. And, Believe me, uh, I always want to give people to take permission to take timeouts from passages that just aren't right for them in their lives. And, and that can be very harmful. Uh, and as I said earlier, the Genesis exegesis in this passage, we certainly now are much more likely to say that Adam had a role in the fall as well that it wasn't something that it's right to just say Eve did this and Adam thought he was eating a dessert she had baked. I mean, that's, that's not the way we read that passage. Uh, and then finally, and, and I do, I do like this one cause I'm, I've always remembered this verse, even though it, it's never really been something in, that I've dealt with in my life. But the final part of this verse, she shall be saved through childbearing. Um, that is very hard for 
women or and sometimes men to hear that they cannot be a part of parenting, women that, that cannot get pregnant. It can be very hard for women who want to get pregnant but have never found the right person. It can be very hard for uh, just single people or couples that haven't had kids and and, are, and haven't fully come to terms with that. It just sounds like there's no place for them to say that a woman will be saved through childbearing. What Again, what Paul said is that this verse is counter to a Gnostic tendency, and Gnosticism would have been one of the spiritualized types of religions that was going on in the day. Uh, but a Gnostic tendency to put the focus of women on purity and virginity as the role of the female. This instead focuses on the body, on the value of embodiment. And embodiment is a very Hebraic and Jewish affirmation. It's, it's an affirmation that is consistent with Christ having become God in the flesh and Christ having been raised in the body. But embodiment in this instance of, of childbearing would be affirming women or be affirming the care of children, the actuality of pregnancy and childbirth and the bodily, messy, messy functions of all that, saying that we are saved in our care for that which is embodied and that Christ Jesus himself was human in an affirmation of embodiment. Uh, it is, there's been a constant battle in the history of religion between the incarnational or embodied Christ versus a spiritualized Christ. That Christ is the spirit who hovers above and we don't want to think of Jesus as being a human being with all of our bodily weaknesses and functions. Uh, in the 19th century, Theologians Kant and Schleiermacher, who were very, very influential, actually taught that Judaism is the most inferior of religions because it it was concerned about behavior and embodiment, about the earthiness of life. And that in itself was an expression and gives rise to anti-Semitism. So in some sense, as, as hard as this is to hear, there is a focus on on body and birth and continuation of, of the earthiness of our, of our lives that is counter to the overly spiritualized religions of the day. And, and the question for us is, you know, what in this is unchangeable and, and good? And, and what of it is, is baggage that we need to, you know, even if we're going to read it or even if we're going to, to use it, um, you know, how do we use it in a way that's positive and affirming of, of, of the larger tenets of our faith? So with that, I'd like to be unmuted. And and I really do encourage anybody who, who has a comment or wants to speak about this to, to do so, because I know this is very tough. And I feel a little bit of the of the sadness of not being together in a room. Uh, because these are these are difficult texts. They're texts that can be hurtful, but they're texts that I. Uh... Larry, I have yes. one comment. Um, yes. it's, it's Paige. Yes, Paige. Um, 
you know, sort of the, the overriding thing that had comes to me with this passage is that I don't think Paul could have written that. I it seems inconsistent with other scripture where there are very specific women who are helping with the ministry. And if it's the Bytha or Damaris or, you know, there's some, we've read some chapters where they just rattle off of women's names. I just, to me, it's sort of like, this is really inconsistent. Uh, well, Paige, I would only say about that, I have never heard anybody say that before, but that's great. <laughs> I mean, it, and it's not that Paul isn't inconsistent. I mean, he, he really is a very up and down human being in what he writes. But I think what you're seeing is that in much of what you've seen in Paul before, contrary to the way a lot of people read Paul, there is there is an openness and an affirmation to women that this seems to contradict. Yeah. So people mm-hmm. that love Paul would love to hear you say that. So <laughs> well, contradict, contradict. Okay. I can right. use that instead of inconsistent. Yeah. Okay. Other comments, Catherine. Yeah. Okay. This is, Are, is everybody unmuted? Larry, this is Stephanie. Can you hear me? Okay. Stephanie. Yes. Yeah. I agree with Paige totally. And other sources <laughs> that I've read like Bart Ehrman, make the distinct point that many scholars think that Titus and Timothy weren't written by Paul at all. But this is so inconsistent with the words used, not just these attitudes that Paige points out, but the different words used. And in fact, these books of the Bible were written years after Paul was in fact deceased. Right. I I think it's inconsistent. Okay. And and you would see the inconsistent as... Chauvinism of the age. As being an an argument against Pauline authorship, which, which is fine. Most scholars don't think Paul, Paul wrote this. I'm, I'm still interested in, but it's in the Bible and it's had a history. So, but, but that's good, Stephanie. And you're right. A lot of that scholarly argument is, is on vocabulary and language and, and the way he expressed himself. I mean, you know, if we read a Jane era, you know, novel, we sort of know what period it comes from. It's not, you know, Hemingway. So we can sort of, there's that much difference in language. Yes, someone else. This is Barbara. I just, I just wonder why was this uh, included in the Bible? This is what I'm wondering. Why was it included in the Bible? Yeah. Um, (laughs) What does it offer? (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, I was, I was quoting Tom and trying to give you the best offering that I've ever heard for. Okay. Now, that does not necessarily explain why it was in the Bible. And, and this is not the only material which people have asked why on earth or why expletive deleted was this in the Bible? Uh, but again, the Bible is a, collection of writings that that developed over two to three hundred years and at the end of the day councils and committees fought over what the final collection of books would be i don't i've never i i don't know a lot about that i don't know if you know the timothy letters slipped by on a close vote or not I guess I, those, I bet, uh, were any women on those? I was just going to say, I don't <laughs> think they were. No, I, I don't, 
<laughs> if there were uh, women that slipped into those meetings, they were uh, dressed as men. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, hey, Larry? Yes, Roger. Is it our Ted? Well, I was just going to say, you know, in defense of, of this, if you, for me, I, I got a lot out of uh, the Timothy, First Timothy uh, 11, 511, where he talks about the good fight of faith. Yes. Yeah, how can you not, how can you not discount anybody that says, shun all those, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, fight the good fight for faith. Yeah. I mean, and we're going to actually, we may talk about that in a few minutes because I do want to close on a positive note because I love that last chapter, but it doesn't have anything to do with women. I well, mean, this shows the inconsistency maybe of yeah. the, of the, of the authorship of this letter. Yeah. Or, the humanity of Paul. I mean, I have known people in the church in my life who had horrible views about race, but were wonderful people in so many other ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're right. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. horrible views about women, probably, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but were wonderful people in other ways. And, and I don't. I don't celebrate that, but I don't uh, want to throw that out, I guess, is, is what I say. Larry, so, it's yeah. Judith. Yes, Judith. So I don't know if it's even possible, but maybe the day before he wrote this, he, you know, some woman pissed him off. You know, I mean, how many times have we been in that situation? I don't even know, like, what Paige was saying that was that this probably wasn't even written by Paul. And you yourself said that many scholars believe that it was not written by Paul. But, I mean, there are a million explanations for this. And the thing is, the real question is the question that was asked later, which is, you know, why was it included? It, yeah, it goes like, I remember when you said, you know, you couldn't even bear to look at the women on the screen as we were reading this. Like, we're not clueless that there are people who think this, right? but <laughs> one would wonder, I mean, this elevates the authority of this, you know, and, and that is what is so troubling. Not that somebody had a moment. He was writing a letter, right? So, you know, he wasn't thinking that this was going to be 2,000 years, that this was going to be considered so elevated. But it, it's, there are many people who think that they take it and they put it in different contexts and it's very destructive. Okay. Um, I, I, really, I, do, I do think it's important to say, and Catherine, Kurt's trying to get unmuted. Did you see that? Yeah, I, I think I'm unmuted now. Okay. Yeah. So I did, just yeah. hang unmuted, on, Kurt. Kurt. Let me, let me try to answer Judith and then we'll go to you. And then I think Mary Ann wants to say something. Uh, I, I do I think it's important say to say that uh, this material has probably been more influential. Let's assume, let's assume he had a bad day and a girlfriend dumped him the day before. I love that theory. Okay. 
I love that. I'm not seeing that in any scholarship, but I love the theory. It's not impossible, Larry. Not impossible. But but this passage has had enormous legs in the history of the church and the history of Christianity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but but it was not a new race because the Judaism out of which Paul came and the Greco-Roman world into which he he went, you know, were equally male-dominated worlds. Right. So in that sense, it, it has legs because it's a reflection of of much of what human history has been for centuries, and and which frankly we're fairly new at trying to overturn. And that in itself right. might be the lesson. Right. That it's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a long battle, but, yeah, but it's, uh, it's a worthy battle. It is fighting a good fight in many ways. So let me go. I think Marianne was first and then I'll do Kurt. So Marianne. Uh, I know Beth was there too, but I'm just thinking that, you know, the whole tenant of the Catholic church, which includes the nuns and how they're viewed. And it's just, it's just so unfair and it's existed for centuries. You know, I'm not even sure it still doesn't exist now. Um, and, and I, and I think whoever, I mean, the people who chose what, what went into the Bible obviously came out of that whole yeah. um, group and it, it just kept on going. Yeah. And it's, and it's really been fairly recent that in history that, that we are, have been trying to overturn that. In, in a systematic way. Yeah, that's true. So, Beth, did you have something? Well, I just wondered from the perspective of consider yourself a biblical scholar as such, but you are the biblical scholar to whom we are listening and we are um, also having other people's opinions as well. But I wonder, it seems to me, if you take Christ and what would Christ do, and then you take the history from the Old Testament right on up through the New Testament, it seems to me that some of the writers, uh, maybe Paul, Paul or those who interpret Paul or translated Paul, I, I, it's confusing me that we could have such a loving Savior and that we are left with this dilemma at this point. I, 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 I have no aspersions to cast. I have no opinions to state. I just am wanting to share with you my confusion over this, if you look to what Christ is supposed to represent in our lives and that here we are in 2020 still trying to figure this out. Uh, as last week we were touching on slavery and, and that's not under the radar here in these passages. Yeah. Uh, uh, now we're touching on uh, the inequalities that uh, seem to be represented in in this scripture. 
So I just throw that out, and thank you for listening to my comment. I have no, you know, I don't have an end point I want to go to with this. Okay. And I would would say that you're on the right track, though, by, in a sense, reading the Bible, but especially the New Testament, through the lens of Christ. And, And as I said earlier, you know, we're, we're 90 years after his death and resurrection, and there's some sense of the church not being quite as uh, idealistic or as he was. I mean, it's sort of ossifying and maybe reflecting culture more. Let me give Kurt the last word, and then I want to go on to the, to the next chapter. So, Kurt, Hal? Yes, hi. There. I agree with the comments people have been saying. I think, Larry, you really hit the point. There's a, the reason why this is here is because it's here and controversial. I don't think, believe that we shouldn't think the Bible wouldn't be controversial because the Lord's teaching us through, through examples and controversy. We're discussing this, what, 1900 years, after, 1900 years after it's been written. So obviously there's a, there's a lesson in here. I, I don't personally take it as literally. Yeah, I'm a guy. Okay. You know, I can take the hit for that. But I think that the, the lesson is, is what we're discussing. We're, 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 this has been talked about, as you mentioned, for, for a long, long time. And it's still being talked about. Yeah. So I think we need to see the Bible mm-hmm. as sometimes it, it stirs us to thought and stirs us to introspection. That's my only point. Thank you. Thank you. And it, it, it is an ongoing conversation. And that's, that's the point of Peter Enns' work. So, so let me, let me turn to some of the, um, I'd now like to turn to this Second Timothy four. Um, I want I want to read that because it's it's an absolutely wonderful way to to finish. I think we may end up going a little bit over tonight, but that's all. Larry. I'm just yes. going to take a second to mute everybody because a couple of folks are stepping on your you with their audio here. Okay. Yeah. Mute everybody. Okay. So. There you go. Okay. I want to I want to point out. I mean, I've got three three things that, that I could have covered, but one of them is, um, I'm just going to read the passage that Ted referred to earlier. And in, in first Timothy six, starting at verse 11, I just want to read this, but then get to second Timothy four. But as for you, O man of God, he's writing Timothy, shun all of this, uh, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He will use that. We have a hymn, Fight the Good Fight, but he will use that phrase again in this next passage. And it is it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, phrase, I believe. I, I joke because, uh, I mean, we do have a hymn in the hymn book and, Maggie, when we got married, she is a wonderful liturgist and bulletin planner. And she was living in Iowa and I was here and she planned this wonderful service. And the last hymn she chose was Fight the Good Fight because we love it. We love that hymn. And when I told the staff here one time about five years later when we were picking that hymn, I said, oh, we had that hymn at our wedding. They just guffawed because that's like you're going into a wedding. No, you're going to be fighting in a marriage. But we didn't take it that way at all. So that hymn is that phrase has a special place in my heart. So what I'd like you to read is turn to first to Second Timothy four. 
And this is Paul's farewell. And uh, I'm going to highlight some phrases and then just literally, he is in prison. He is old and he doesn't think he's going to live for much longer. So listen to it with that, with those ears. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearing of his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent. I love that. Whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, the church always has to be persistent. Convince, rebuke, encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And I love this next phrase. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away into myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Carry out your ministry fully. He's writing this to Timothy, an individual. But I love that concept that people get impatient and we have itching ears and we want to pick the latest teaching, the latest guru, the latest TED talk, the latest minister, the latest politician that makes us feel better. You know, it's just a warning against that versus being persistent. And then this next, these next few verses are, are just lovely. And I want to talk about several phrases in it. I did a whole summer series one time after reading this in a class, New Testament class. I did a whole summer series on some of the phrases in here. As for me, Paul, I am already being poured out as a libation and the time of my departure of my death has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is still with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful in my ministry. I've sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You must also beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. At first, In my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Achaia in the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth. Trophimus I left ill in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sister, sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. What I want to point out in this is, um, and, and there have been great classical sermons preached on this, obviously on fight the good fight, but the phrase come before winter, which he begins with, and then he returns to, he says, come and see me soon. And then he, he at the end comes back and says, come before winter. What that is, is that winter is coming and Paul does not believe that he's going to make it through another cold winter in, in prison. And he's basically telling Timothy, not only come and see me because I'm, I'm near the end of my life, but make sure you come before winter because I'm not going to be here if you come in the spring. And there was a, there was a famous sermon in the 19th century with that, that its title and many ministers have preached that. I've, I've preached it and, and, uh, always given credit to that sermon, but, uh, whenever I have preached that in, in both churches or three churches I've served, it has, it has led people to pick up the phone and call people that they love. Or it has given people permission or gratitude that they are so glad that they went to see their mother or their, their sister or their father or somebody that was really close, you know, when they were dying. Because that is really what Paul's asking for. Um, we announced in church today, or, or Patrick announced that, that, um, Tom Paulson had passed away. Tom Paulson was a, an admiral and, and a really terrific, kind of the best of, of the military people. And he, he and Marbeth left Westminster about five or six years ago when they moved into the Fairfax military retirement home. And Tom had, had been dealing with with some loss of memory over the years. Um, but I got a call from Marbeth day before yesterday um, that Tom had had a massive heart attack and had been brought to Alexandria Hospital. And, and at the time, she was there and not able to see him. And she said he was on the respirator and wasn't going to make it. But they had two children and like four grandchildren, all of whom flew here in coronavirus, taking risks, and got to Alexandria Hospital, and the hospital let them alternate being with him all night, uh, I guess night before last. And and she called called me, and we arranged for me to basically do a, fa- a prayer with the family via uh, speakerphone because, because I couldn't go, and she didn't really want me to go. I, we talked about gathering at the outside in the – 
outside the emergency room, outside the building and, and having a prayer, but they didn't want to leave him. So we did this. And it's one of the both saddest, the most beautiful things I, I've experienced is just that was a family that got there and, and knew the value of this. And it's just, uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful verse that just jumps out of this book that has so much that we don't want to read. <laughs> you know, it's so much that's just, that's just troubling, but, but come before winter is so very important. Um, I also love the part about bring me the cloak. They think that is because it is so freezing cold. I mean, there's a woman in our church who writes a prisoner in Virginia and, and Kurt would be able to affirm this. A, a man that was given a life prison for being an accessory. I mean, he was in a car with young men and somebody went in to rob the store and they killed a clerk. And this, this guy didn't plea bargain and got life. But, but this man who has formed Bible studies and, and has really been there about 10 years in, in a strong life literally freezes in a Virginia state prison because the conditions are so bad. It's just so cold. So here's Paul writing for a cloak to try to stay warm through the winter. Uh, he says to bring in the books and the parchment, you know, and it, and it just makes us ask if you were infirmed or imprisoned or the proverbial stuck on the desert island, stuck on the island, the middle of the ocean. What are the three or four books that you would want with you that you have had all your life and that have sustained you? And, and who would you want to write the letters to on the parchment? You know, he wanted enough paper to be able to write. And so he says, bring me the books and bring me the parchment. And then, the the last thing I love about this, he's also, you know, recounting the times that he's faced suffering. Yet I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me again. To him be the glory and, and honor. I mean, on our last days, uh, are we going to remember the things that we have survived that just maybe uh, it was an act of grace that we survived. Just maybe some sense that we were protected and rescued from the lion's mouth. Uh, and, and, and grateful to God. And then the last one in here that I absolutely love, and I'll, let's see how much time I've got. Three more minutes, so, and then I'm gonna read you a poem, but, uh, I absolutely love the phrase in, of, of, the sentence, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. I've preached on this. In, in the midst of these thanks and this bring me, he is remembering somebody named Alexander the coppersmith who appears nowhere else in scripture. Okay, but he is saying, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. I no longer need vengeance. God is going to pay him back for his deeds. Whatever it was that he did to Paul. 
And then he says, you must beware of him because he is strongly opposed to our message, to what we're trying to do. So Paul has in, in, you know, if you can just think of this, of that person or persons that have really done injustice to you. Uh, Paul has, over the years, on his deathbed, he is not forgetting that act, but he is able to say, I am trusting that God is going to pay that person back, that, that I don't have to be the one to do that. And he is saying, but you, church, going forward, need to beware of what he's doing. Need to watch out for him. And I just think that is enormously profound to say, I'm leaving the punishment to God, but you, in this movement that we've created, need to have a fence up around him. And I just think... I just think that is wonderful because there are so many places in our society where doctors and lawyers and ministers and, you know, where I'm not going to turn him in, you know. Paul is saying, you got to watch this person. This is the Michigan State doctor. You know, this is the, this is the, the person that can do harm. And I know I'm giving him a sermon. Well, Catherine, open it up and let anybody say anything for about two minutes, and then I want to close with a poem, okay? Larry? I'm, I'm, I'm muted everyone, but I... Does anybody I, know who that guy is? Does anybody... Was it, were there any no, historical no, documents? No, we don't know what Alexander Coppersmith did. I don't know if he ripped him off on chewing his horse or what, but we don't know. Larry, I just want to, just for the good of the order, when I am unmuting everyone... About half of the participants are still showing up as muted. Okay. So if, if you're saying something and we're not hearing you, check the lower left-hand corner of your screen and, and try and unmute yourself. And if you can't, just chat to me. Unmuted. Okay. Any, anybody want to say anything? I think the Alexander the coppersmith is about my favorite phrase through that whole thing. But, but you know, it's an interesting, uh, interesting sort of study on forgiveness. Um, in in some sense, I guess we, for, you know, I guess we tend to forgive, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to forget. Right. You know what what happened and. You know, forgiveness has an element of learning to it, um, that you learn from the experience and also how to deal with life coming at you later. Yeah. Particularly if it's from the same source. And Roger, I don't even know that he has forgiven Alexander. Yeah, I wondered about that. Well, why would he be taking such comfort in knowing that God's going to get him? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's turning it over to God. Yeah. (laughs) And trusting that God will take care of him. Maybe that's what forgiveness really is. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Anything? Okay. That was great, uh, Larry. That's all I have to say. And I've got it. Well, let's, we're not done yet. I've got to close with a poem. So let's mute everybody, Catherine. Okay. And I'm going to close with a poem. I want to say, um, 
about two years ago, Maggie and I had dinner with, with a new member of the church and they had brought an older couple over that were their friends from another church. And this man that was in his eighties is a, is a Sunday school teacher at his church. And somehow he mentioned Alexander the coppersmith and I came out of my chair. I said, I have never heard anybody mention him before. So, and he knew him. So we had this long conversation about Alexander the coppersmith while everybody else went to sleep. Anyway, it was just a, a fun moment. So I want to read you a poem and this will be the closing devotional. Thank you all for being patient tonight. We'll see you again next week. I'm glad you're, you're coming in. But this really has to do with the church and with change in history, okay? And it's by a Mississippi country singer poet who I've never heard of in any other context named James Autry. I don't know if it's any relation to Gene Autry, but, but this is, this is the poem and it's called Ordination. If you're from the South, you'll love this. Otherwise, just humorous a bit. Uh, who are from the South. Brother Jim Thompson came, the oldest, with overalls and a white shirt buttoned at the collar, with a walking cane and a Bible that had stood 50 years of pounding with that old fire burning through his cataracts. Didn't need no seminary, Always preached the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and buried and raised from the dead. Brother Hamer came and Brother Ewart and the three Walker boys, preachers all. They came through rain, wrestling the wheels of their out of county cars sliding in ruts so deep that the tailpipes dragged. They parked under the trees and along the road, picking their way along the high spots like children jumping pet puddles. Into the church of their fathers, the place they had all felt the call. The old home church, where thousands of hands had pressed on bowed heads of new preacher boys, of sun-reddened young men called by the Lord, called from the cotton fields to preach the word. They had felt the hands, these old preachers, felt those blunt-fingered, worked-hardened hands, felt them like a blessing, like an offering, like a burden, felt them at weddings and baptizings, felt them in the heat of a summer revival sermon, in the agony of a baby's funeral, in the desperate prayer against some killer disease, in the frustrating visit with a mind gone senile. And now these old preachers came to lay their hands on the head of a new kind of preacher, a preacher from the seminary, a preacher who'd studied the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, 
who knew about religions they had never heard of, who knew about computers and memory banks full of sermons and many other modern things. A new kind of preacher. And yet a preacher who would still feel on her head the hands like a commandment from all the preachers and deacons who ever were. Amen. Good night. See you next week. Thank you.